You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Curtain up theater people, and welcome to your program is your ticket, coming to you from Midtown Manhattan, right in the middle of Broadway. My name is Sean Chandler, and I'll be your host. Your program is your ticket is a discussion of smaller theater works and the people and organizations that make it happen. As many of you know, your program is your ticket is a helpful system where your program is literally your ticket to get into the theater and smaller, more intimate productions. It's these works we like to highlight, and it's our goal on this show to feature as many of these productions as possible while still discussing the biggies. I love theater and see as much as I can wherever I go. During the travels of the production of My Husband and My Play at The Flash, I've met many wonderful people from all over the world in the theater community, and it is my honor to bring them on as guests to the show. Tonight's guest is actor-producer of the current production of Terrence McNally's Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone, currently playing at Workshop Theater here in New York City, the sensational David Gow. Now, I'll be bringing David on in a few minutes, but before I do, I thought it would be nice to give a little information on the playwright of Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone, the incomparable Terrence McNally. He is a giant in theater. If you didn't already know that. Now, here's a little background on Terrence McNally. Terrence McNally was born in St. Petersburg, Florida on November 3, 1938. Uh, the McNally family lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, also in Port Chester, New York, Dallas, Texas, and then they settled in Corpus Christi, where Terrence remained until he moved to New York City in 1956. He was bitten early by the theater bug at an early age when his family took him to see early productions of Annie Get Your Gun and The King and I. Yes, isn't that great? Isn't that how it happens for a good deal of us? Um, he was inspired to write by Maureen McElroy. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, he, she was his high school English teacher, and he dedicated several of his plays to her and even provided the inscription on her tombstone when she died in 1985. And that inscription was, not just an English teacher, but a life teacher. I love that. Uh, McElroy encouraged him to matriculate to Columbia University as a journalism major, that's interesting, where he graduated in 1960 with a bachelor's in English. Now, here's an interesting fact about Terrence McNally. He was hired by novelist John Steinbeck to join Steinbeck's family on a trip around the world to tutor his two, his two teenage boys, a trip that also inspired him to write a first draft for his play, and things that go bump in the night, as well as being asked by Steinbeck to write the libretto for a musical version of East of Eden. I don't think that that ever came about, but 
he probably wrote it, and that's terrific. Now, after graduation, he moved to Mexico. It's an interesting move to focus on writing, completing a one-act play, which he submitted to the Actors Studio here in New York. Now, the play was turned down for production, but the studio was impressed nonetheless and brought him back to New York to serve as the studio's stage manager to provide him with experience in the workings of theater. Now, for those of you who have who are writers who have had a work of yours turned down, now you know, Terrence McDally had went through the same thing. So it happens to all of us, even the, the greats and the giants of the theater. During that time, he met Edward Albee while sharing a cab after a party. The two became a couple for four years, during which time Albee wrote The American Dream and his masterpiece, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's wild. I can't. That's, that blows my mind for some reason. Now, in 1964, his first play, the aforementioned And Things That Go Bump in the Night, opened on Broadway at the Royale Theater. And since then, Terrence McNally has written a wealth of works so long, I would need two podcasts dedicated solely to him. So I'll just give you some of the highlights. Some of his plays are The Ritz, for which he also wrote the film, uh, Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune, also he wrote the film for that, um, the script for that film. It's Only a Play, which was on Broadway a few years ago, saw it, loved it, hilarious. The Lisbon Traviata, which I have to mention because it's one of my husband's favorites, if not his favorite. Masterclass, and then his masterpiece, Love, Valor, Compassion, for which he also wrote the film's script. Mothers and Sons, recently on Broadway, which I saw, loved it, Tyne Daly is awesome. And of course, the play we'll be discussing tonight, Where Is Tommy Flowers Gone? Now, musicals, he wrote The Rink, the books for The Rink, Kiss of the Spider Woman, The Full Monty, The Visit, Catch Me If You Can, and Anastasia, which is currently running on Broadway to packed houses. I mean, packed. It has so many fans. Here's a a cool thing that I found out. He wrote uh, an opera version of Dead Man Walking, the film with uh, Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon, for which she won an Academy Award. So that's interesting. I'd love to see that. And here's a small sampling of his awards. He's won, and this this just are this is a handful of awards, and the nominations are staggering: uh, four Tony Awards, four Drama Desk Awards, two Obie Awards, two Lucille Lortel Awards, one Emmy, and he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for *A Perfect Ganesh*. Um, Terrence McNally is now married to Thomas. I'm sorry, Terrence, if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, He's a very nice man, though. I did meet him, um, and I'm going to sort of like name drop here. About five years ago, uh, I went to an LGBTQ writing uh, symposium panel, and he was part of the panel. Uh, along with um, like Peter Page, who did The Fosters, uh, the guys who do Will and Grace, a lady from Grey's Anatomy who wrote the lesbian storyline. And, of course, I went up to Terrence McNally, and I could barely talk because I fangirl really easily, and I get really super nervous. But he put me at ease immediately. He was super cool. He took pictures, and um, like that was an absolute dream come true. So... There we go. There's there's me name dropping a little bit, but if you would have saw the way I acted during that, you would probably have been embarrassed for me. So, so anyways, um, now it's time to bring on our esteemed guest to talk about his current production of McNally's play, Where Is Tommy Flowers Gone? Actor and producer, David Gow. Hi, David, and welcome to your program is your ticket. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'm super excited for you, and we're sitting here in the theater, and we're like right here looking at the set, and it's a great set. Yes, Zach Serafin, I have to give him credit, designed and built this. Almost entirely by himself. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh! It's so it's 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 beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's it's New York in the seventies, really. Well, New York in the seventies was grungy, but 
he he captured it in such a really specific way. So excellent job. Yeah. Now, um, tell our audiences about where has Tommy Flowers gone. So. One of the coolest things about it is that, yes, it is a Terrence McNally play, and obviously everyone um, knows and loves and respects McNally, but it, it is very much under the radar compared to some of his other plays. Sure. Um, I think partly because it was written in 1971, which you know was a little bit before he became more mainstream, but also it's just sort of an odd play. The topic is odd. Um, with a bunch of vignettes and how it jumps in and out of time zones. Um, it's very different. Uh, but essentially, it's about a rebel in 1971 who is very jaded towards society and is desperately trying to cheat the system in every way he can, breaking the rules, stealing, um, living off of the street, living off of other people in the city. Um, and he's sort of battling two conflicts. One is part of this... Um, yippie Abby Hoffman revolutionary movement that was going on at the time that he has fully pledged himself to and then also this conflict that he has with himself that he's now 30 years old and he desperately cares about his own legacy and being um, famous or a celebrity in some fashion and that hasn't happened for himself yet Hmm. so he has those two conflicts that he's battling And like most people, when the conflict with yourself, whatever that is, your own unhappiness with yourself, you often use your unhappiness with society as sort of a scapegoat. That whatever hasn't worked out for you in your personal life that you would like, you sort of blame an outside source. In this case, Tommy's is the system. He's constantly fighting the system. Um... And he's completely taken a page out of Abby Hoffman's book that's called Steal This Book. That if you read the book, Abby Hoffman, it's sort of the Bible for um, rebels and activists in that time period that um, was very exciting for myself as an actor when I found because it sort of answered a lot of questions. Because so many of the methods that Tommy uses in the play, whereas Tommy Flower's gone, of ripping off the system is written out spelled out by Abby Hoffman in this book of how to steal in, oh my gosh, every way, in the subway, in the restaurant, in hotels, everywhere. Um, And so Tommy's sort of become a savant at ripping off the system, which uh, can be very charming and attractive um, as a lifestyle for a while when you're younger, but when you turn 30, you know, it's not necessarily cute or endearing anymore. It's sort of time to buck up and grow up and get a job. Um, So that's where we find Tommy at this point in the play. He's 30 years old. He's been doing this for a while. He's bumming off people, going house to house. um, And we're sort of seeing him at a breaking point of, is he going to continue doing this? Um, If it's not sustainable, or is he going to find another alternative? Huh. So it sounds like he's he's between uh, when we when I write I, I focus on points of view with characters and uh, the point of view of a twenty something individual is very different from the point of view of a thirty something individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas twenty somethings are figuring their life out, thirty somethings it's time to get serious. Right. It sounds like he's like right at that bridge. 
and, and, and I mean, are the people in the play that he's dealing with, are they getting a little, the other characters, are they getting a little annoyed with them? Yeah. And that's some of the main conflict in the play is that again, when you first meet it, it's very, um, magnetic to be around someone like that. But after a month or two, that definitely wears on somebody of, we can't just sort of be on the run at all times. And that creates a conflict, especially with, um, a romantic relationship that he develops with the character, Netta Lemon, who's played by Emma Gear. Um, you know, she's drawn to him immediately, but she was brought up by her parents to find a good, stable doctor who's going to take care of her and she'll have kids and be at home. And, you know, I, he offers an alternative to that. But then after a while, it does sort of wear on her of, I would love to sit down at a restaurant and just pay for a meal for once, like have a typical date. And Tommy is not about that. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. He's probably about, now, I, I have not seen the player read the mm-hmm. script. I'm thinking he's more about, like, Dine and Dash. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah, you'll see it in the play. He's a master at it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk about some of the other characters in the play. So the majority of the characters in the play are coming in and out, and actually in the program are just listed as men, women, girls, etc. And um, we have three fantastic actors, Al Fallick, Emily Kitchens, and Noel Franco, who come in and out and wear many hats in this play. Um, and I think that's intentional because they're such a blip on the radar for Tommy as he's jumping around. The only sustainable characters that actually get names in the play, which I think sort of signify that they're anchors for Tommy, um, are previously mentioned Netta Lemon, right. um, who is his romantic interest. Um, ben Delight, who is a fellow homeless former actor man that he meets on the street who Tommy takes under his wing. And then Arnold, who is his dog, who is actually played by um, Sam Garber, is played by an actor, who is his ultimate best friend and follows him around the whole play. So Ben, Netta, and the dog Arnold are the three staples in his life. Wow. Yeah. Uh, now, the play opened off Broadway at the Eastside Playhouse on October 7th, 1971, and closed on December 12th after 78 performances. And a couple of, of people who are kind of big now, but weren't so well-known back then that did roles were um, Sally Kirkland took over the part of Netta Lemon at mm-hmm. one point. Uh, she's an Oscar uh, nominee. Um, and then an Oscar winner, F. Murray Abraham, played the men. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, there you go. And, you, you know, like you said, that was a limited engagement. It didn't necessarily light the city on fire. I mean, it was well-received, but it's a very odd um, play. And that's actually something that's been interesting to see in audiences' reactions. You know, thankfully, I have very honest friends who I can talk to about it after. And I would <laughs> say the show is very polarizing in that some people either love it or they hate it. Um, 
which I actually love. I, you know, I mainly just want to show that sparks conversation after the performance, mm-hmm. uh, good or bad. Um, and so I love that it's not for everyone. It's really out there, and I understand why people love it, and I totally understand why people say it's not for them. I see. Yeah. So the audience reactions are are there. Is anybody landing in the middle? Uh, is it either a love or <laughs> hate situation? Right. I'm with sure it? that someone has. Out of the people I've talked to, not yet. No, it's wow. very much extreme ends. Um, I've also had people say right after the show that they didn't like it, and then the next day call me and say, "Actually, sitting with it, I get it, and I actually really appreciate it." Um, but it's odd. I mean, it's not. It's a lot of it takes place in Tommy's head, where you're in reality, and then all of a sudden you're in either a flashback or something that he's imagining, and so it does take a second. Um, it's kind of like hearing an accent in a show. It takes right. the ear a second to get adjusted to it. Sure. I think it takes probably a, maybe 15 minutes for the audience to sort of gauge what's happening, um, which some people are cool with and some people would prefer it you know, to be more of a quick right. thing. Um, but yeah, I, I love that people, it's opposite ends of the spectrum. Some people love it and some people are very confused by what's going on. Wow. Um, it, it, I, I have a feeling that that, they're loving the actual show, but you're invoking emotions that makes them feel either one way or the yeah. other. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, and, I like Tommy yeah. or I don't like Tommy. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and it's uncomfortable what he's going through because it's not pretty after a while. I mean, sure. he makes it look very smooth, um, but when he really gets tested on this... Um, it's not pretty. And he also, I mean, he, he sort of swears by a topic that's very uncomfortable. He, he says over and over to the audience, he says, I love this country, but it's got problems. I kind of just want to blow it up and start all over again. Uh, I mean, that, that's tense. That's uncomfortable. That's and he yeah. says that throughout the show. And you don't really know if he is sort of saying that flippantly or if that's something he's taking seriously. Um, but he says, you know, we could blow it up nice or we can blow it up tough. And I'm trying to, to do nice, um, but if I'm pushed the wrong way and if I'm not liking the changes that I'm seeing in society, I might have to go tough. And that, that's uncomfortable for people to hear, for sure. Right. Well, I, I love that McNally goes there. I love that he of doesn't course, shy yeah. away from that. He's, he is not a, a shy playwright. I mean, if, if you uh, remember seeing uh, Corpus Christi, which had so... Uh, I mean, people were picketing the show right. and boycotting the show, and, and it was just a, it's a huge deal. So it's probably great to be able to play those uh, that reality and those frustrations and actually get, get rough and get tough. Absolutely. And, I mean, I forget sometimes because while there are a bunch of pop culture references to this time, it's so applicable to what's happening now. So I forget that this was written in, I think, 1971. Yes. It's astounding that McNally was talking about these things that were just not represented in theater at the time. Um, another example of that, things that go bump in the night. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, that was, you know, not 2017 when that came out. That was in the 60s, I think, right? That was, I believe, his first uh, yeah. play that he wrote, right? I mean, that's, he has a lot of courage to be churning out some of this material in the time that he did. Right. I, I think I was I was talking on another show uh, with a gentleman by the playwright by the name of S- Steve Kaliski, uh, who wrote uh, the Briefly Dead, which is running uh, in New York as well. 
and we were discussing the fact that sometimes a playwright has to be a bit of like a prophet. You have to sort of, and yes. you don't just imagine what you imagine. What if? Yeah, and w- yeah, and or where? Yeah, uh, I like the word prophet because also where is our country headed? Like maybe this is uncomfortable now, but you know it's going to have life because this is the momentum of the country. And he was correct with a lot of this stuff. So a lot of what you're saying is a lot of the the themes that are uh, in Tommy Flowers, they are applicable to what's happening now. Frighteningly so, yeah. And like actually... Some, like 40-odd years later. Yeah, no, and that was what was maybe the, the greatest draw to doing this play now, was, yes, Tommy Flowers is a pop culture junkie and is a Rolodex of information of celebrities at the time. Putting that aside, it is um, a very accurate representation of our country now and especially the frustration and the youth movement um it's amazing it's it's amazing how similar the restlessness and the culture was in that time period as it is to right now yeah wow uh, a lot of playwrights are saying that that a lot of the work that they wrote you know 10 5 10 15 right. years ago it's 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 being echoed you know, serendipitously, if that's the proper word for it, right now with everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that playwrights and, and uh, they write a lot in chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and when there's chaos, they try to make sense of it through art. So um, I guess what's the old adage? The more things change, the more they stay the same right. in culture, I suppose. Um, okay, let's talk about you a little bit and some of your feelings about theater. Um, are there any particular messages uh, or themes that speak strongly to you and the projects you, you select to produce, um, act in, uh, I don't know if you write or direct, any mm-hmm. your participation artistically? Um, in terms of style of play, I, I sort of run the gamut. I like everything from, you know, going to see a one-man show with one actor and a box on stage to full-blown giant spectacle musicals, you know. I don't really have... Um, one specific genre I like. I mainly just like shows that when I see it, I think that story needed to be told. I mean, I think, so I had that reaction I just saw in Decent a few months ago on Broadway, and I thought, this is the reason why theater is important, is to tell stories like this. Such a great show. Right. Um, Everything about it, beyond just that that was a beautiful story that should be told, Mm -hmm. um, stylistically what they did with the um, dust or sand in their hands and right. how people jump in and out of telling lots of characters. Um, I, just everything about that show I was in love with. Um, yeah. what, what about yourself? Uh-huh. What, what attracts you for participation in a project? Um, what... When, when you read a script, what really stands out to you? Mm-hmm. To, where you go, I want to do this. Right. Uh, first thing is just the actual writing. I mean, any play that you read of McNally, you're reading it, and it's frightening how already um, the words are alive just on paper. Forget that he's had some of the most brilliant theater actors in the last 40 years star in his plays. The words alone are fantastic. Um, so if I feel like I'm already seeing the world and hearing the voices just by reading it on the page, I'm drawn in, and I feel that way with McNally. Um, this one, this specific project got started mainly just because um, I've been a huge fan of Laura Braza's work as a director. Um, she has been coming down as a guest director 
um, to North Carolina School of the Arts. And she's the director of, yes, of this yeah, production. She's the director of Where's Tommy Flowers Gone? And she's also the artistic um, director of uh, The Attic, an off-Broadway theater company. Sure. So I met her about six years ago. She would come and guest direct when I was a student at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, and I sort of b- b- boldly insisted to her without having worked with her or spent much time with her. I said, Hey, you're really good. When we get to New York, we're going to do a show together. And because she's a theater lover and for whatever reason, she said, sure. And so then after I graduated and came to New York, I said, Hey, let's do this. So it sort of started first with, I want to work with this director, then let's pick a show. Um, so she was sort of the first catalyst. Um, I've produced shows in Houston and California in the past. I produced a show in, um, the Hollywood Fringe Festival. I did Where's Scooter Thomas Gone, wow. um, which I love that play. Um, and both of those felt very easy for me. Um, producing a show in New York is a completely different animal. Indeed. Um, I'm glad that I was so naive about the process because I think if I had known everything in front of me, I might have gotten too scared. So I'm thrilled that I didn't know because then it worked out. Um, so I started with, you know, that I had Laura Braza as the director. And then I started... Um, again, naively applying to the rights for different shows, thinking, oh, well, I'll apply to this one and we'll get the rights and then we'll start in a month. Um, I, not the case. I applied to the rights for 12 shows and we got the rights to two shows. Um, this being one. Um, and so I, I had a meeting with Laura and I, I said I have the rights to two shows. The first show is this one. And before I even got to the second one, she lit up and she said, oh, this has been on the docket for my theater company, The Attic, for years. I think this play is fascinating. Let's do it. And I said, okay. Um, I still don't actually know if I told her what the other option was, which is funny. We just ran with this one. Um, and so we got the rights to this back in February, I think. And then as time went on, we felt even more and more fortunate that we did. One, because it's a McNally play and he's such a popular writer, but also just because the events that have unfolded in our country in the last eight months just sort of aligned perfectly with what the story was we were about to tell. So we felt very grateful that we snagged it so early. Um, uh, and it's funny now when I'm saying that this conversation started in February, I think, oh, wow, that was so long ago. But actually the fact that, you know, we started the conversation about producing a show and then put it up in eight months later actually is pretty remarkable. And I'm impressed that we did it so quickly. Yeah. That's like, like that's a quick turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, so are you going to keep it to yourself or are you going to tell us what the other show was? It's okay if you want to keep it to yourself and then spring an honor at some time. I could, <laughs> the, I, I actually, I'm, I don't think anyone will know this show because I found it when I was in Scotland about four years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is still the greatest theatrical summer I've ever had in my life. I call it the fringiest of the fringes. It's the fringiest of all the fringes. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I really think any theater junkie, anyone who loves theater should, that should be a bucket list thing. I, I just think it's an incredible experience. It is. Um, and so we read this play. I'm even blanking on their name, uh, the playwright. It was some sort of, I don't even think it, the production got outside of Scotland, but it's called Decky Does a Bronco. Um, what a great title. It's, yeah, and it's a fantastic play. Um, I would, you know, that's still in the back of my mind of doing eventually because I think it 
has not gotten its due. Actually, I'm happy to give it this publicity because I think it's a beautiful play. Um, but yeah, there you go, Laura Brasa. If you're listening, that was plan B. Right. Yeah. You're welcome, Madam Director. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think is an important direction theater is taking right now, just overall? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I keep on thinking of Indecent, of that... When I saw that show, that, to me, did not seem like a show that five, ten years ago would have made it to Broadway. That seems like sort of a typical regional or off-Broadway production because it didn't have the giant spectacle of a Hello, Dolly. And, you know, nothing against Hello, Dolly. I love Hello, Dolly. But um, I love that something like that or like a musical like Fun Home gets its recognition in these that are such actor... I mean, Fun Home is such an actor musical. Of It's not this giant sparkly production um and i love that i love that i love uh shows like once that um get their due and win you know the tony for best musical because i i love the simplicity of that um and i love how unique that story is um yeah i i love that when i have family members coming um from texas up to new york and they say what show should i see i feel like no matter who it is that's telling me um, you know, really conservative friends from my church or really out there people who like, you know, whatever it is that there is a show that I can recommend to them. I feel like there's such a variety of shows in New York, which I love. I love that it's not all the exact same cookie cutter model. Right. Right. Uh, okay. Can I fangirl one more time? Oh, please do. Okay. Yes. I'm going to fangirl over Katrina Lank, who is in Indecent, uh-huh. uh, who is the female lead. She has, I don't know if you recall her, but she has kind of like a, like a Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo sort of tenor to her voice, and she plays the violin in the show. I love her, and I also saw her in Once, and um, she's like one of the few people that I'll actually stage door. And uh-huh. um, um, it's, it's a good thing that I can just fall back on the fact that I'm gay. Otherwise... She would probably have a restraining order taken out. Oh, no, good. I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like that. <laughs> um, but she is. She is terrific. She is also in a a show that's very much like that. I know you've been busy doing your show, but um, in the band's visit, yes, it's another one of those shows that it that um, it it. I think it puts this, this is you know arguably a, an arguable statement, but it puts character first. A hundred percent. Yeah, and then and then the the music and the songs are informing the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I love those. Oh, I totally agree. Kinds of shows. Because, and again, I feel like that's an actor's dream because then it's working from storytelling first. And actually, um, my good friend who I went to high school with, who's an actress, Stephanie Stiles, her father, John Stiles, um, is one of the producers of uh, the band's visit. So I haven't seen it yet, but I had conversations with him back when, you know, before they brought it to New York. And I think that that was absolutely something that he thought was important. Um, oh, yeah. That when he started talking about this, the production, the first thing he would say was this story. Um, and I can't wait to see it. I mean, everyone that has seen it has fallen in love with it. It's it's terrific. And, uh, you know, coincidentally, since Katrina Lincoln is in both of these productions, because uh, she's, she's in the band's visit, um, it's, it, they feel sort of like the same style. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they're directed by two different people. Uh, Rebecca Trachman, I believe, is the director of uh, Indecent and one of Tony, well-deserved. And then David Cromer, 
I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He directs the band's visit. Mm -hmm. He's really good about uh, uh, really sort of boiling uh, everything down to one or two, maybe three or four of the most important choices for the scene and highlighting those. So I love that. And I love that it's so that that kind of theater is so popular. I mean, the band's visit is what everyone is sprinting to go buy a ticket for right now. I know. Great. I know. It's so hard to get a, a, a ticket for something like that. Plus you have like Dear Evan Hansen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's in the exact same sort of vein. So that's, that's a great answer. Now, other than what we've discussed, are there any uh, particular shows that are on your radar, radar that you feel exemplify that new vision or direction of theater? And I'm, 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 I guess what I'm asking about is like you brought up such a great show that you found in Scotland. Right. Um, is, is, is there anything that's out there that we don't know about um, that, that you'd like to recommend? Oh, man. Um, I wouldn't say no one knows about this because it was a big success. But I think that um, the Kentucky cycle is incredibly underrated. I mean, it had its, you know, do and it's beautiful, but um, I think that's just the most epic Story For anyone who doesn't know the story, it follows three families that start in 1790, I believe, and it follows the three families on one plot of land in Kentucky until 1970. Hmm. So it's also an actor's dream because it's a two-night performance, seven hours, nine acts. Everyone, So you play one part, and then you play your nephew and then your grandson, and you follow the lineage over 200 years, and it's just wow. spectacular. Um I, I I did that play when I was at Pepperdine, and that was one of my still one of my fondest theatrical memories ever. Um, I love that story. I love um, Bent, oh, yeah. which also you know is not like an obscure play, but also I think is underrepresented. I think it's terrific, and again, I think is the ultimate representation of why theater should be done. I mean, telling the story, you know. Everyone knows the the star and what that represents in the Holocaust, but not everyone knows the pink triangle. Right. Um, and if that's if that play is an outlet for telling a story that has sort of been lost through history, I think that's incredible. Oh yeah, uh, it's great that you're bringing up these shows because uh, we have listeners to the po- of the podcast that are uh, that are all over the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, the Kentucky Cycle has done quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, probably more so than Bent because of its subject matter. Um, but it's it's maybe not something that somebody would uh, uh, say, okay, I, I really need to see that. So mm-hmm. you talking about it, it's great because if it's being done in a local theater um, or a, 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 like a regional theater of sorts, then then they can see it. And it, that's, yes, that's, and I highly yeah I highly recommend going to see it. Um, it's also fascinating because in that play specifically, one of the three families is an African American family, and so you see like in in you know 1790 they're in, they're slaves on this um, plantation property, whatever, and then 1970 the same family they're in a romantic relationship with. You know, so it's amazing. It's of tracking America over those 200 years and how things have changed so radically. Um, it, I almost wish they could do like a part three where they, then they do, you know, bridge it to 2017 because it's fascinating to see what else has changed. But yeah, that's an all time favorite for me. I think that that would probably be the first three part three theatrical event 
Yeah, that yeah. would be nuts. Because because Kentucky Cycle, you say it's it's like is it one of those that's like two nights or matinee and evening? Yeah, it's kind one of, of the like two, Nicholas, like Angels Nicholas, in America Angels kind of. America, right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, cool. That's that's excellent. Um what do you think is the best part of being involved with smaller, more intimate productions? Um the best part for me is that it's the ultimate learning curve and that you have to wear many hats. Um, our incredible stage manager, Mariah Pepper, I mean, she does her job and about six other jobs too. I myself as an actor and the producer, I'm wearing about six hats too. It feels very much, um, it builds a huge community because everyone is sharing the load and the responsibility in some way. Right. Um, you know, this stage and set we're sitting on now, we all helped paint it and construct it and stuff. Um, which also as an actor helps for storytelling because you, it's not, you don't just walk into the theater and see, Oh, this is my set. You know why this is hanging here and what this represents on the set is actually really informative for storytelling. Um, but also you just feel so much more invested in it and so much, it's so much, um, it's so much more important to you when you have had a hand in every piece of its creation. Right. That's, that's a terrific answer. Uh, I've, uh, I've, I've asked this question to everyone and a lot of people say that when they're in a big show, um, there's, uh, there's less, uh, synergy going on mm-hmm. where everybody's working together and, and making it all happen. Um, and there's a lot of decision by committee. Right. So to, I, I don't think I've ever heard it put so well as the way you talked about everybody being involved with painting the set and creating the set in, in the connection to their character. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's like, uh, that's, that kind of blows my mind a little bit. That's, that's really super smart. <laughs> everybody out there that's listening to this, do that. Make your actors build the set. Yes. Put them to work. Right. Yeah. Unless of course they're equity or union and then forget I said <laughs> right. all of that. <laughs> Um, what should every theatrical artist, uh, actor, writer, director, technician be doing right now to be relevant and successful in the industry? I think it's, it's sort of similar to what I said, but um, I think the two things, one is um, test the waters and all the other fields, like the ones you just named. I remember originally thinking, oh, well, I'm only an actor, so I'm just going to act. And that just puts such a ceiling on where you of different projects that you can get involved in. Um, I've found that I also love directing. I love producing. Um, I haven't tried it yet, but I think my friends that have, um, written their own material then create a huge platform for themselves. I have a lot of really creative friends who have created web series because they're such great writers. Um, I think it's a disservice to yourself as an artist and as an actor, as a performer to just say, Oh, this is what I do. I think, you know, the more hats you can wear, the better, not just for yourself as, you know, artistically, but also to get yourself out there and get seen doing different things. Um, and then also I would say, um, I mean, I'm now at a year and a half out of school, but I would say the first year of school, um, or first year out of school, rather, not to have any kind of ego about what projects you think you should be doing. Mm. Um, or how much you should be getting paid. I think those two. Um, <laughs> I said yes to a lot of projects when I first got out of school that 
Um, I don't know if I would necessarily do now, but I'm so grateful that I did because you do them and you meet, it's such a chain reaction of just meeting people in New York and you do one project, which leads to another. Um, they say that so much of getting jobs and acting is through osmosis more than auditioning. Um, absolutely. So I think just, even if it's not, you know, a giant pay or the job of your dreams, just doing something creatively to keep flexing those acting muscles or just to meet new artists and expand your community in the city, I think is crucial. Wow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, that's, uh, that's a very popular answer. Uh, and it, 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 it felt like a two part answer in that what you're saying is, is diversify for sure. Um, and, and in that diversification, combined with uh, not having any ego and doing as much as you can, saying yes as much as you possibly can, uh, that sounds like a great formula. Yeah. For pe- particularly for people who are getting out of school and just kind of like getting their feet wet. Yeah. That, that would be my biggest advice to um, people that are having their first year in the city is just say yes you know, to everything because... I actually did this once, um, I don't know what it's called, but like a a diagram where I wrote like, okay, I did this play and then I wrote like a dash, which led to this, which led to this. And I can sort of track it to 10 or 11 projects that would come after saying yes to one janky, not necessarily artistically fulfilling project. But because I did it, I met a bunch of wonderful people and it provided, you know, other opportunities that have lasted for the last 18 months. So. Well, that's, that's good. Always be connecting. Right. Always be connecting. Now, do you find that when when students get out of, of college or acting school or whatever education they're pursuing, do, do they have a tendency to... We were talking about point of view earlier. Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's their point of view? I'm, I'm 52, so I've lost all track of that, mm-hmm. but I'm always interested in... How do you feel as a student, like when you're when you're out? Do you do you think I'm going to conquer the world? I'm Broadway in a year. Yeah, yeah. I think it varies. I um, I I I felt like I had enough teachers and alumni and successful artists that had come to the school and sort of warned about that. That. Mm-hmm. Um, the mantra of you have to go on a hundred auditions before you book one or you have to hustle. It's not going to be like hitting, you know, you, it's sort of like being hit by lightning to book your first Broadway show a month out of school. And so I, I, I feel like I took that to heart very seriously. Um, and also that, you know, I was told over and over again, you cannot have this, you know, idea that. I'm going to be sitting at home and waiting until the phone rings and it's going to be Broadway. Like I, right. you have to do it on your own. Even if you do have representation, you know, I, I got an agent out of showcase from school, but I, as wonderful as, um, my agent is, I try to have the mindset of, I almost don't have an agent and then I need to get everything on my own. Right. Um, and that becomes exhausting. But if I sit with myself of, you know, if I, 
put them both on a scale of yes, like hustling and going on two or three auditions every week is tiring, but my like burning desire of I want a career in this is much heavier, you know, than I'm going to keep doing the audition grind. Um, and I, I almost feel like if you're going to come to New York and you are dead set on auditioning, that you have to do that. I feel like it's almost like going to school and not showing up for class. Don't go to New York if you're not going to go on the audition grind. Right. Um, which, you know, is lots of rejection and it's very tiring and tedious, but that's sort of just part of the game. So. Well, also, uh, to, to your first point, if you're constantly creating projects for yourself and involving mm-hmm. you in something of which you have control over, uh, you, you feel less out of control. You feel more... I, I think that if you're putting your fate in somebody else's hands, the lack of control can be crazy. Right, yeah. And if you've got this other project you're working on, you can kind of forget about that for a while. Yeah, and I think actually that's why I first started producing is because I hated the what if notion of, oh, what if like I did this play that would be so fun or what would it be like to work with this person? Instead, oh, let's just do it. Right. You know, instead of thinking, oh, wow, whereas Tommy Flowers Gone is a really cool play. I wish I could do it at one point. Let's do it. And I want to work with this director. So let's do it. And I love this actor or actress. So let's do that. You know, I think you're that's. That's very true of that. If you want producing is the shortest way to getting the. Um, the project that you want done. Wow, that's that's a terrific answer. Now, uh, before I ask you if there's anything else you're working on or to give your social media information, would you like to do a speed round with me? Ooh, okay. I don't know what that is, but let's go for it. Okay, cool. All righty. What's your favorite play? Uh, I'll stick with the Kentucky Cycle. Okay, cool. Favorite musical? Once. Once. Love that show. Love it. Uh, favorite writer? Terrence McNally. Awesome. <laughs> Director? I'm going to go Joe Mantello because he's an alumni. I'll give North Carolina another shout out. Love Joe Mantello. Yeah, just... Just this this unknown guy named Joe McCall. Yeah, really obscure director <laughs> that I want to put on everyone's radar. Exactly, totally. And um, do you have a mentor? Oh, gosh. All my faculty, um, the teachers at North Carolina, um, Sid Davis, I will give him a shout-out. He was the music director in the shows that I first started doing when I was a kid in Houston and sort of harassed me to continue acting when I didn't think it was an option, and now I'm still acting, so... Wow. And he actually came to opening night, which was amazing. He and yeah, yeah, he came out here. That's terrific. Yeah, it was the best. And that uh, and Mr. Davis was Mr. Davis, right? Mr. Davis, okay. yes. Was from North Carolina? No, or he from... was back uh, when I was growing up in Houston. When oh, I in first Houston. Okay. Shows. Okay. Yeah. okay, great, cool. Um, well, excellent. Now, tell me if there's anything else that you're. And I'm going to say there probably is based upon all of your answers. Is there anything else that's coming up or coming down the pipe for you in the near future mm-hmm. that you want to talk about? Um, I filmed a web series about four or five months ago, four or five months ago called Don't Suck that will be coming out at some point in 2018. I'm writing that down. Yeah. Um, uh I mean, the, the main thing I'm thinking of right now is that when the show ends, I'm just shutting everything down for two weeks because I'm so tired. Um, but besides that, I, I'm 
I will say I've been um, very proactive of sort of booking up my calendar. Uh, and so now I'm kind of looking forward to not having everything blocked out so I can just sort of see what happens. Hmm. Um, I sort of overplan my schedule and I think I need to just sort of leave time open to see if, cause you know, while I'm doing this show, I've been, I've had to say no to a few things. So I'm excited to just kind of, I have like a two month window open right now, uh, just to audition and see what happens that I'm looking forward to. Well, that's actually a lot of people say that a lot of mm-hmm. people answer the question, uh, that way that. Uh, well, I'm, I'm often interviewing people who are in the middle of a show. Uh-huh. So it's like, after this, I need two weeks to just lay on the couch and watch TV. Right. <laughs> I say that, and then after a week, I get antsy, and I'm like, what's next? But yes, I am going to take the week. Okay. So. Well, well, that's good. It's sort of like, get it all out so that you can bring it all back in. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, why don't you give our audiences all your social media information? There's a particular address that has everything on it. That's fine, too. So I am new to Instagram, which... I've finally bit the bullet, but I'm David F. Gal. Um, and then I also have an actor website that is, uh, if you just Google David Gao site, S-I-T-E, then my site's up there. Wow. Okay, cool. I'll have to look for that because I was looking for you. That one's also pretty brand new, too. Is it? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, there are other David Gals as well. Right. So... Well, anyways, uh, in my opinion, there's only one David Gao, oh, one and only, you. sitting in front of me thank right here. Um, David, thank you so much for being on your program. Is your ticket your uh, your energy is is uh, palpable, and I really am looking forward to seeing the show. And um, uh, actually, do you have a website for the show? Yes, we do. Okay, um, let's, let's let's give that out. I've, okay. Also, I think the easiest way is just to go on Google. If you Google, where is Tommy Flowers gone? The title, it'll pop up. We use like the Weebly site. Mm-hmm. So it'll be there. Just Google, where is Tommy Flowers gone? If you have any other confusion about that, type in Workshop Theater, where we're doing the show. Uh, and yeah, we have a um, website for it that has ticket information and footage of us doing rehearsal and stuff like that. Excellent. And there's a Facebook page. Right. Uh, and it's event page, where is Tommy Flowers gone? I know because I looked it up in search. And you guys run until Sunday, December 17th. Yes. Correct. Okay. So you still have a couple weeks to... Two more weeks, yeah. Two more weeks to, to perform it and for us to see it. Yes, I'm so, so excited you're coming. So I'm, I'm thrilled. So everyone, please, if you're in the New York City area, come and see the show. Uh, again, love the set. Thank you. I'm blown away. The set is, is a representation... Of the rest of the show, it's it's big time. Good. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank Um, you for having me. My pleasure. Great job. Now, at the end of each show, I like to give shout-outs to current productions worth a recommendation. On tonight's episode, I'm recommending an incredible play that's had two productions here in New York, first in 2016 at the Duke on 2nd Street, and now at Lincoln Center's Mitzi Newhouse Theater. I love that name. I don't know why. Um, It's The Wolves by Sarah DeLapp, and I have to thank David for looking it up on uh, YouTube and telling me how to pronounce the name, because I have not had the pleasure of meeting Ms. DeLapp, although I would probably fangirl all over her, too, and make a fool out of myself. But anyways, uh, here's a synopsis from the Lincoln Center Theater website. Left quad, right quad, lunge. A girls' indoor soccer team warms up. From the safety of their suburban stretch circle, the team navigates big questions and wages tiny battles with all the vim and vigor of a pack of adolescent warriors. The Wolves is a portrait of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for nine American girls who just want to score some goals. Now, 
I wanted to go see the show in its previous production, and it was always sold out. And I just, I, I, I could see why, because it's such a wonderful, wonderful show. Uh, the girls on the soccer team are all named by the numbers on their jerseys, yet you absolutely and brilliantly on, on Sarah DeLapp's part know for certain who's who by the end of the first scene. And in addition, in the in the first scene, they're all talking so fast, and and yet it's there's just absolute clarity to it. Um, the the characters were specific and totally real, and the cast is phenomenal. The direction is by Lila Nuj Nujbauer Bauer. I should have had you look this up as well, Lila Nujbauer. Okay, that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, sorry, Lila, um, but your direction is flawless. Um, the the direction is tough when it needs to be and sympathetic when it needs to be as well. Um, my critical eye stopped focusing on the mechanics of the show and fell into the story right away. And that doesn't happen all the time, but that usually means that it's excellent writing, not just for me as a writer, but for everybody. But as a writer myself, I was dazzled. The lap's dialogue rhythms are stunning, and her willingness to be daring with themes and topics suggests a writer who isn't afraid to take chances in challenging the audience, much like, like Terrence McNally. Yes, I'm going to make that comparison there. So you're welcome, Sarah. Um, I don't want to say too much more about it or reveal any of the plot. Uh, so I'm just going to say go. Uh, the Wolves runs until January 7th, unless they extend it, which they would be smart to. Uh, you can visit lincolncenter.org for tickets and information. Well, folks, the proverbial 11 o'clock number has been sung and the bells have been taken, so it's time to lower the curtain. I'd like to thank my guest, the sensational David Gal. Thank you again, David. You were amazing. Uh, you can find more episodes of Your Program as Your Ticket at facebook.com backslash your program as your ticket. I'm on Twitter at, at program ticket. Uh, the website is, you guessed it, your program is your ticket.com. I'm on iTunes and SoundCloud. Rate me and write me a review and subscribe. Um, that all helps. It, it increases my profile, and I appreciate that. So there you go. Folks, take a little time to see a show this week, and don't forget to give a smaller show some love. There's a lot of great theater jams out there. Until our next show, good night, theater people, and Kurt. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud, with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. What they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.